If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This June, at the Evangelical Covenant Church annual meeting, delegates will have the opportunity to vote on a resolution to repudiate the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery can be traced back to the 15th century when popes began issuing a series of decrees that established religious and legal justification to colonize and take ownership of land that wasn't currently occupied by Christians. In 1823, in a unanimous decision for the U.S. Supreme Court case Johnson v. McIntosh, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote that, quote, the principle of discovery gave European nations an absolute right to new world lands, unquote. Thus, the doctrine of discovery became part of U.S. federal law, legalizing the dispossession of native people from their land. This became a significant part of the story of the lands of these nations. It is a part of the story of the people who were here long before the United States or Canada was even an idea. In fact, it is a dehumanizing story. That its beginnings can be traced to papal decrees means the church had a direct hand in launching this belief and practice. For that reason alone, it serves us well to shine light on this history, to not only remember, but as fellow ambassadors of Jesus, who has given us the ministry of reconciliation, to renounce such evil. The sin of the doctrine of discovery is determination that the full expression of the image of God is found only in certain races. As a denomination, we recognize and include Indigenous people in our purposeful narrative. As a church, we have become more aware of the multi-generational impact of poverty, hopelessness, loss of identity, loss of life, and suicide on Indigenous people and people of color as a result of the doctrine of discovery. It is time for us to recognize the hurtful past of the doctrine of discovery and to repudiate it. We're asking the church to listen to our stories and hear how this resolution can start the healing to our brothers and sisters. When you hear that I was born on Pine Ridge Reservation, you might understand this means I'm Lakota, but what do you understand about reservations? Why were they created? Did you learn about the doctrine of discovery in school? What it is, what impact it's had, and how it continues to harm Indigenous peoples today. Are you willing to consider what role the Church has played and what a healing response might be? We may think that this is all history, but it's not. It continues to affect us all. Ecclesiastes remind us that three strands cannot be broken. When one hurts, we all hurt. The doctrine of discovery separates the strands of the body of Christ from each other elevating the rights of people of European descent above indigenous people as well as other people of color. This hurts us as a church, but this year we have the opportunity to make a difference. A written resolution to repudiate the doctrine of discovery will be presented for a vote at the 2021 annual meeting. Please take time to get informed. Visit covchurch.org backslash resolutions to learn more. The first two presenters there, Jim Sequoia and Curtis Ivanhoff, 
are friends of mine, and I've spent a lot of time actually in the national level working uh, very closely with Jim Sequoia. So this vote that's coming up at the end of June on the resolution repudiating the doctrine of discovery is a very important one. The thing you have to understand is that Jesus Christ has called the church to unity. And sadly, some people of faith often avoid discussing racial tensions that exist in America right now, while others who often meaningfully do confront these challenges take the opposite approach and ignore faith altogether. Faith is the key to building bridges of reconciliation. Without faith, we will be unable to move forward toward reconciliation and unity. Now, with this in mind, what was your reaction going through your mind to the Doctrine of Discovery video that we just watched? Let me share with you six that I've heard people say uh, since they viewed this or since it's been discussed. Well, I didn't steal anybody's land. I wasn't even here back then, nor were my ancestors. I'm not responsible for any of that. Here's another. Why is our denomination all of a sudden having this discussion right now? Is this political? Is this some kind of appeasement? Or here's one. I've never been part of the Catholic Church. I've never endorsed the Catholic Church. So why do I need to apologize for the Catholic Church? Or here's one. Well, some indigenous peoples were equally wrong as the European colonists. They've killed they plundered, they enslaved, and some even practiced human sacrifice. Is our denomination going to also speak out against those atrocities? Or here's one I've heard. How did the indigenous peoples get the land? Is it divine right? Was it squatters' rights? Did they pay anything for the land? Did they kill anybody to get some of the land that they occupied? Or here's one I've heard. Well, I'm both European and Native American descent. Who am I supposed to apologize to? Now, did any of those thoughts race through your mind? Or did you recognize when you watched that video that our faith does trace its history through the Catholic Church? So this is part of our church's story. And in the name of the Lord, many brutal things were done to indigenous peoples. Cultures were destroyed. Lives and languages and traditions were, and customs were lost. A devastation that still impacts Native American people to this day. Did you know that the average Native American, especially Native American male in the United States of America, lives almost 30 years less than the rest of our population does? There's no denying the ongoing effects of this displacement of so many people in our nation's history. And this is also why Native populations are so resistant, resistant to missions agencies and missionaries, because it just seems like them like another form of white people's belief in their superiority. And all that our denomination is doing in this resolution of repudiation of the doctrine of discovery is to say that what was wrong was the church to endorse this doctrine of discovery, and that we lament the loss of life the loss of culture and well-being from such a practice. And what is so important for us to understand right now is that awareness is crucial in the process of reconciliation. To not acknowledge any wrongdoing in our nation's history or by any of our ancestors and to not truly lament that is to continue the suffering 
of our native populations. And at very best, it means to just continue to ignore their suffering. Everyone needs to know the truth of what happened if we're going to move forward in this process. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, when he's talking there in that section about the armor of God and how we're to take our stands against the devil's schemes, he said that we need to stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist. Now, if we don't know the truth, if we don't tell the truth, if we are unwilling to listen to the truth, we're never going to be able to move toward racial reconciliation with others, especially people of other cultures and ethnicity than our own. You know, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, he prayed for the church. In chapter 17, verse 17, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God, set aside your holy people by your truth and do that through your word, which is the truth. So are you ready for some sanctifying truth today from the word of God? Here's one. Each ethnicity reflects a unique aspect of the image of God. No one tribe or people group adequately displays the fullness of God. Just like no one gender, male or female alone, completely reflects the image of God. And as we talked about last week, race is a social construct that has divided people since the beginning days of humanity. Christianity, however, on the other hand, dismantles this way of thinking because it unites people in Christ. It unites us in love. It unites us in fellowship. It unites us in worship. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29 say this. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now this verse is not saying that our gender or ethnic identities are of no importance. Paul is saying that in Christ we can find unity in our diversity. We are all different people, all different parts of the same body with differing gifts and abilities who need to recognize the image of God in one another. Now remember our foundational truth from last week's sermon? God did not create race. Mankind did. But God did create ethnic groups. And our scripture reading for today, which was Zechariah 2, verse 11, the first passage, I want to include verse 10 in there. And here's what it says. Shout and be glad, for I am coming and will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Nations there happens to be the Hebrew word goyim. And it means people, it means the Gentiles, it means the nations. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that happened just years before Jesus came to the earth, uses the word ethnos, which clearly means they're foreigners who were different from the Israelites. Now, Acts 13, verse 47, that we just heard in our scripture reading as well, says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We're a light 
not to go out and defeat and conquer and destroy the world. We're a light to the Gentiles, which again is the word ethnos, to the various peoples and nations throughout the world to bring the good news of Jesus. Why? Because salvation is for everyone. It's not for certain people with certain amount of melanin in their skin. It's for everyone. Now the truth of God's word tells us that the people of God have a common history. We are all created in God's image. We're all part of God's offspring. We all have the same salvation history. We have the Messiah, Jesus, who came and died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. We believe that he rose from the dead at conquering the grave and that one day he's coming back for us. We believe that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father over all. And we all study the same book, the Bible, and we practice the same sacraments, baptism in the Lord's table. And we believe in a God who can reclaim what the locusts have eaten. We believe in a God who can set prisoners free. And we believe in a God who can give beauty for ashes. But what God's people don't necessarily have in common is a common memory because of our ethnic histories that are different. What's more, a lack of awareness of this often hinders the process of reconciliation. As the video at the beginning of today's message pointed out, in 1823, the United States Supreme Court in Johnson versus McIntosh determined that Native Americans could occupy and even control lands within the United States of America, but they could not hold title to these lands. In 1830, our country passed the Indian Removal Act, which allowed President Andrew Jackson, who had earlier in his life committed genocide against a village, an encampment of Native Americans, slaughtering everybody there, men, women, and children. It was so horrific that Davy Crockett, who was the scout who led Andrew Jackson and his men deep into the wilderness to find this village of of Native Americans who he thought they were going to negotiate with in some way, shape, or form. He didn't know that the intention of the mission was to wipe everybody out. And as a result of that, Davy Crockett and Andrew Jackson ended up having a lifelong feud. Went all the way through Davy Crockett's years in the Senate to the point where it literally destroyed Davy Crockett's financial life and he ended up having to leave and go to Texas where he lost his life in the Alamo. It was President Andrew Jackson who would end up relocating all the Indians living east of the Mississippi to lands west of the Mississippi. And this displacement was known as the Trail of Tears, where these indigenous peoples were placed in the Indian territories, in different, a different climate, with different ways of gathering and self-sufficiency. And many Native Americans died en route to this new land, while others perished because of the uh, harshness or the difference in the new environment. In 1862, the Homestead Act was passed, which gave millions of acres west of the Mississippi to white settlers, wrenching it from the hands of indigenous people. And then in 1902, spilling into 1903, the Supreme Court uh, of the United States of America ruled that Congress had the right and the power to modify or even terminate any Native American treaties without the consent of Native Americans. Thus, all but making treaties worthless. Christ has called the church to unity. And awareness of, uh, is crucial in this process of reconciliation. This process of building bridges 
And we share a common salvation history. And we share a common American history. But we do not always have a common memory. As the people of God, we must lament the bad things that were done to various ethnic groups. Some in the name of Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the one who can bring healing to such unjust, gruesome atrocities. After all, Jesus was unjustly tortured, convicted, and murdered. He was hung on the cross because he opposed the world's dominating, governing authorities. He opposed the world's dominant culture. And he even opposed the use and abuse of religion as it was in that region. He did it to bring reconciliation to this broken, fallen, sinful, unjust world where hatred and racism has found a way to flourish. Jesus is the one when he hung on the cross in Luke 23, verse 34, who said before many of these sins were even committed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus has called the church to unity and awareness of our historical roots and the harm that has been done to various ethnicities is an important step in the process of reconciliation. After all, Jesus was the one who said in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yes, that's the truth of the Gospel, but the Gospel also tells the truth about what's happened in the world around us so people can understand one another and move forward in the truth. In addition to this awareness, let me say that empathy is an important part of the process of reconciliation as well. To not care about the trail of tears, to not care about the displacement of countless Native Americans, to not care about the number of uh, times where genocide has occurred of men and women and children among our First Nations people, and the lasting impact of all of that. Frankly, folks, that's unbiblical. That's unchristian. And to not care about the millions of African Americans who were enslaved on our soil and following the emancipation, the victory of the Civil War, the countless blacks that were lynched and mutilated and unjustly treated and imprisoned, and the whole penization thing, where, where they were accused of ridiculous crimes, so then plantation owners in the South would, would buy them out of their prison sentences, and then they would end up as indentured servants forever, working in slavery in, in much harsher conditions than before. And then a Jim Crow era being marginalized and not even being allowed to vote. Folks, that's biblically unjust. You know, empathy for Christians is part of the reconciliation equation. You know, there's a well-known adage in counseling and therapy circles that hurt people hurt people. All the injuries, all the distrust, all the betrayal, all the injustices, all the anger, all the resentment, all the disappointment, all the hatred, all the mistreatment and abuse sets the stage, humanly speaking, for injured people to hurt others. Which is why the gospel is so important to set people free from all of this. Like John Perkins, who I spoke about in last week's message, whose older brother was gunned down in Mississippi by a town marshal, and who John himself was beaten nearly to death. He said that the easiest thing for me to do would have been to answer hate with hate and racism with racism. But if you want to understand what's going on in our nation right now, this is a pretty good explanation. 
people are responding to hate with hate. They're responding to racism with racism, which frustrates so many people who want to see the important necessary changes that need to take place in our culture. But you don't fight hatred with hatred, and you do never defeat, and you do not defeat racism with racism. Now it needs to be said, because remember, we committed ourselves last week to telling the truth, and we're going to tell the truth in this series. It, remain, it, it needs to be said that we are not the same country where racism, slavery, genocide, and the internment camps, the concentration and detaining centers, where minorities spent sometimes years in with wristbands and not being you know, able to go wherever they wanted to go or do whatever they could do because they were detained there. Yes, there are pockets and places of racism in our country. There is racial profiling, and there's fear of people with black, brown, and white skin. There's also very violent places in some of our nation's major cities that strike fear in the hearts of many of their citizens, including of all ethnicities. But listen to some of the changes that have gone on. You know, right now, the National Football League of the United States is 70% black. Uh, my wife Cindy and I were two of the 14,692 people who got to attend last January's national championship football game between Ohio State University and the University of Alabama because we're good friends with the punter for the Al University of Alabama. First time in my life I ever had to cheer for Alabama at a game. And uh, Charlie Scott, he gave us tickets to the game. And we were there and attended. And it's just fascinating because 55 years ago, Blacks couldn't play for the University of Alabama. Yet all 11 starters on the defense for the national championship, Alabama Crimson Tide, were black. And nine of the 11 starters on offense were all black. And then we got to be at the victory party, which was 2 o'clock in the morning, back at the hotel with all the parents and all the players when they came in. And there was all these hugs and congratulations and celebration. And no one was concerned about anybody's skin color. It was a beautiful thing. And the next morning, my wife Cindy and I were riding down the elevator to get out on the beach in Miami to enjoy our last day there. And we ride the elevator down with Devontae Smith's father and Devontae Smith's uncle. Devontae Smith won the Heisman Trophy this year. He was the most valuable player in the national championship game, set the record for the most yards ever in, a, in receiving yards in a game. And he did it in the first half because he dislocated his fingers. And he went on to be drafted, I think, in the first round, 13th player drafted. In the, and we got to talk with his dad and uncle and stand in the lobby and talk with him a little bit and congratulate him. And it was this beautiful, wonderful time of celebration. And nobody was concerned about how much melanin was in somebody's skin. You know, watch any of the U.S. track championships or world championships or watch the Olympics coming up at the end of the summer and watch the finals and the sprints. And you know what you're going to see? You're going to see people of color. The vast majority of people playing in the NBA right now, and I think it's close to 80%, are black. Even though African Americans make up only 6% of our nation's population. People are also regularly charged and convicted in our society with hate crimes that are done against ethnic groups. And today we have affirmative action, which helps assure somewhat diverse workplaces and university enrollments. Citizens also in the United States, relatively speaking, are free to travel. Most anywhere, stop at restaurants and hotels and fueling stations, and they can be served there. It wasn't that many decades ago when people of color would travel predominantly at night. 
And when they drove into a community, the first thing they looked for was another black person. So they could see and ask them where it was they could go, what part of the city were the blacks in, and where could they get something to eat or fuel up or get a room to stay at. In other words, where was it safe to do those things? In our culture right now, one of the worst things a person or a corporation can be accused of is racism. So much so that major corporations will bend over backwards spending millions upon millions of dollars to not be perceived as racist. Yes, our nation has come a long way, but sadly, we still have a ways to go to be the society that Dr. Martin Luther King dreamed of, where his children would be judged by the, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Empathy toward those who have suffered historically and even recently from the horrors of racism is a vital part of the bridge building of reconciliation. And bridges are built from two sides and built toward the middle. And certainly as Christians, we cannot control how others build from their side that have opposing views maybe to our faith. But our instructions in God's word are very clear. How are we to act? Uh, as Micah 6, 8 says, we're to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. As Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Part of empathy biblically is also lament. It means to express sorrow or regret for what harm that has been done. You know, when George Floyd needlessly lost his life one year ago, did that bother you? When Breonna Taylor accidentally but tragically was killed, and many others like that, does that bother you? When police officers lose their lives in the line of duty, do we lament all of these things? See, to lament is to turn to God, to turn to God for help, for healing, for comfort, for redemption, and for restoration. Too often, we just want to fix things. We want to move on in our individualistic society to triumph and comfort and not sit with the sadness and the despair of what is happening around us. Does the violence in our nation's cities break your heart? Do you grieve that? Are we troubled by the horrendous public schools that some parents, especially those in our minority populations, are forced to send their children to? Does the drug and alcohol epidemic or the poverty that's so rampant or the fatherless homes or the gang warfare or the decline of churches, and I could go on and on, do those things break your heart? Do you lament over those things? Or are we calloused and just kind of shrug our shoulders and, well, that's just another day in America. Lament is a form of empathy because it's an acknowledgement that things need to improve. And it's a heartfelt desire on our part to do better and for things to get better. God-fearing Christians will lament all of these tragedies occurring in our world, long for better days, and pour out their hearts to God. And friends, this is biblical. Did you know that there's an entire genre of psalms that are lament psalms. From memory, I believe there's 16 of them, either individual laments or community laments. And then there are parts of other psalms that have laments within them, lament aspects as part of them. And when God appeared to Solomon, remember this, in the night after the temple was built and dedicated, what did he say? In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people 
who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Not caring about the suffering of others is not an option. Not lamenting for the ills of this world and the ills even in our own lives means to not pray. It means to not seek the face of God. It means to simply watch the daily news, shrug our shoulders, feel hopeless and say, it is what it is. Friends, that is unchristian. That is unbiblical. Empathy is an important part in the process of reconciliation. And part of empathy is lament, calling out to God in agony and grief for what has been lost and what is being lost. You know, tomorrow's Memorial Day where people throughout the nation will go to seminaries and pay their respects to those, uh, specifically those in the military who have given their lives to protect our freedoms. But do you realize that tomorrow is a commemoration of a different kind? It's the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa, Oklahoma race massacre. Have you even heard of this massacre? I encourage you to look it up online because just this last week, 10 days ago, 11 days ago, the U.S. government just met in some hearings on May 19th with three of the remaining black survivors from this massacre. 107-year-old Vita Ford Fletcher and her 100-year-old World War II vet brother, Hughes Van Ellis, the third was a 106-year-old black woman named Leslie Benningfield Randall. Now, Vida said that when she was in her early childhood, she had everything a child could ever want. And then the massacre occurred. Fletcher's brother, Hughes Van Ellis, again, who was 100 and a World War veteran, he was just a baby. But he said when he grew up, his childhood was hard as his family struggled to recover from the massacre. We didn't have much. What little we had would be stolen from us, Ellis told the committee. When something is stolen from you, you go to the courts to be made whole. This wasn't the case for us. The courts in Oklahoma wouldn't hear us. The devil courts said we were too late. We were made to feel that our struggle was unworthy of justice, that we were less valued than whites, that we weren't fully American. Fletcher, uh, the older sister, served white families for most of her life as a domestic worker. She said, I never made much money. To this day, I can barely afford my own needs. And Leslie Benningfield Randall, the, the lady that was 106, along with some experts who testified, called on Congress to provide reparations to survivors and descendants of the massacre. She said, we're not asking for a handout, Ellis said through tears. All we're asking for is the chance to be treated like first-class citizens. This, that, is, this, that this is a land where the liberty and there's liberty and justice for all. We're asking for justice for a lifetime of ongoing harm. Let me read for you Latasha Morrison's short write-up on the Oklahoma, this Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. In 1921, the Greenwood neighborhood was a bustling modern mecca on the fringes of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Some called it Black Wall Street. During the great oil booms of the 1900s, many African Americans had moved to the Tulsa area in hopes that this new industry would bring economic opportunity. And over the following two decades, much of the local population settled into Greenwood, pushed out of Tulsa and the surrounding areas by racist municipal laws, such as prohibition against black people moving into a block where at least three-fourths of the residents were non-black. 
But this relocation of African Americans to Greenwood, this pooling of the talent led to a sophisticated, highly educated, and prosperous black community. They shared their money and resources with one another. And the thriving community, they bought from one another, you know, bought at their stores. And this thriving community included a school system, hotels, hospitals, cafes, modern homes, and indoor plumbing. Many black women even wore four coats. And many citizens in Greenwood were more successful than white people in the surrounding region, which led to jealousy within the white community. And the oil industry continued to expand as opportunity for black workers increased. The majority community determined to, in essence, keep them in their place. Any black worker reaching for the American dream was met with hostility. Whites levied against black men false accusations of rape or sexual advancement on white women. There were accusations of theft and other petty crimes. Lynchings were on the rise. So was the growth of the Ku Klux Klan. Amid this tension, 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a shoeshiner in Tulsa, was accused of assaulting a white woman while riding the elevator at the downtown building where he worked. Rowland was arrested and taken to the jail where he was held to await judicial proceedings. The white community demanded justice by lynching and marched toward the courthouse. The black community gathered at the courthouse in an attempt to protect Rollin to ensure justice. And the town uh, uh, police officer, chief of police there, asked everybody in Tulsa to leave, and the black people did leave at that time. But later in the evening came back, many of them men armed, uh, and they were, many of them were World War I veterans, and they wanted to protect this young Rollin. Well, with tensions at an all-time high, a few shots were fired and, a bl- and the black citizens fled back to their Greenwood neighborhood. The next morning, the white mob descended on Greenwood. Buildings and homes were looted. Black men were lynched. Tulsa founder and Ku Klux Klan member W. Tate Brady reported seeing one black man dragged behind a car by a noose. Airplanes flew over and firebombed the neighborhood. This was the first time that an aerial assault was used by the military on citizens of the United States of America. At the order of the Oklahoma governor, the National Guard appeared and arrested more than 6,000 black citizens from that area. They were taken basically to an internment camp where they were kept for many, 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 many months before they could ever uh, be let go. Not one white person was arrested. By the end of the massacre, which lasted only two days, over 300 African Americans had been murdered. More than 40 square blocks of homes had been burned to the ground and 10,000 African Americans were left homeless. Businesses were lost forever, and the once thriving community was desecrated in one day by citizens, many of them who had been deputized, the police force, the National Guard, and the governing agencies. It would be more than 80 years before this massacre was acknowledged by the American government or the state of Oklahoma. And then it was more than 90 years later in 2013 that Tulsa Police Chief Chuck Jordan initiated a formal apology from the Tulsa Police Department. In it he said, I cannot apologize for the actions, inaction, and dereliction that those individual officers and their chief exhibited during that dark time. But as your chief today, I can apologize for our police department. I am sorry and distressed that the Tulsa Police Department did not protect its citizens during those tragic days in 1921. May 31st, 1921. I have heard things said like, well, that was a different time. 
That excuse does not hold water with me. I have been a Tulsa police officer since 1969, and I have witnessed scores of different times. Not once did I ever consider that those changing times somehow relieved me of my obligation to uphold my oath of office and protect my fellow Tulsans. Willful ignorance of the facts and willful bias and prejudice, which means to prejudge, will keep us from building bridges of reconciliation. It's never too late to lament. After all, Christ has called the church to unity. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, today we again thank you for this very challenging sermon series that we are going through, Courageous Christianity. But God, as we've committed ourselves to telling the truth, telling the truth about the good that's gone on in our land and is going on in our land, but also being honest about what was not good. And Lord, I pray that we can be bridge builders as Christians, recognizing that we're all made in the image of God, that we uh, are all uh, uh, desirous of knowing you, whether we realize it or not, God. You've placed that burden within each of our hearts. And so, God, I pray, as your image bearers, that we would be your ambassadors of reconciliation in this world. And uh, we pray it, Lord, in this tense times of social unrest and racial tensions in our country. May your church lead the way in Jesus' name.